After graduating from Columbia with a history degree in 2004, Tom Mayer wanted to be a professional musician, but went broke in the attempt. To make ends meet, he painted his girlfriend's mother's house and sold goat meat to Caribbean patrons at a Brooklyn farmer's market. Good thing his father had been a writer, so his mother was able to get him a courtesy interview with his father's old editor at W.W. Norton to learn about the publishing industry. Coincidentally, that editor, Robert Weil, just happened to be looking for a new assistant. Tom was at a beach house with friends when a manuscript was delivered, tossed on the porch under a hornet's nest. After dodging the hornets and rescuing the manuscript, Tom read it over the weekend while his friends tanned at the beach. He wrote a report, sent it to Weil, and was hired. Now, eight years later, after shooting up the ladder at Norton, he's a senior editor with well over 50 books to his credit, ranging in genre from science to literary fiction. We'll talk to Tom about what being an editor entails, how a submitted manuscript becomes a published book, and why editing fiction is more difficult than nonfiction, as Tom Mayer joins us on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Krista Bean, and today we're welcoming to the show book editor Tom Mayer. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. Hi, Krista. Thanks for having me. So you've been an editor for eight years, and you've been the senior editor at Norton for a year and a half now. And since, That's right. since this podcast is aimed at aspiring writers, uh, I know at least a portion of our listeners are unpublished authors who've never had a manuscript um, in the hands of an editor such as yourself. Um, can you explain just a little bit about what exactly you do as the senior editor at Norton? Sure. Uh, happy to do that. And again, thanks for having me on. This is a real thrill. Sure, yeah. Um, what do I do? I, I don't know. I'm there from start to finish. Like, just this morning, I was in the office of our editor-in-chief, and I was talking about three books that came in that are interesting. Um, I get between 15 and 20 proposals a week from reputable agents. Um, and not so much anymore, but I used to get a lot of unsolicited submissions. Um, so that, in addition to the stuff represented by, you know, so if, you, if, you, if an agent represents you, you've made it over one hurdle, right, you know, right. and there are many fewer agented authors than there are unagented authors. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get, so then an agent submits things, and, you know, I know lots of book agents, and we do business together frequently. So I get 15 or 20 proposals a week, say, Usually, it's, I like one of those proposals. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually, I'll bring up one proposal a week, more or less. Okay. And out of, you know, so one proposal a week, you know, 50 proposals a year, I buy 10. So okay. that means that I one out of five proposals that I bring to my board is accepted, and four out of five are rejected for various reasons. Um, or are... Uh, Sometimes we'll make an offer, but somebody else will make a different, a bigger offer or whatever it is, and so we don't get the book. Um, but uh, I'll get a proposal in. I think it's interesting. Um, I start thinking about how it fits in the marketplace. You know, what category is it in? You know, what kind of book is it? Is it a sports biography? Is it a, you know, narrative musical history? Is it a, uh, a humor book? Is it a nature writing book? Is it nonfiction? Is it fiction? You know, once, you know, start to figure out where it's going to fit on the shelf at Barnes & Noble or at my local independent bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, then once I figure out where it sits in the store, what kind of book it is, I start thinking about other recent books that have done similar, uh, have done similarly, you know, so if I have a book that's uh, a memoir about, I don't know, a snake handler. I go around to see if there are other snake handling memoirs out there okay. and figure out, you know, whether 
whether people are interested in snake handlers or you know it, this it's sort of a weird alchemy I, I sort of look around the bookstore uh usually online but sometimes i'll go to an actual bookstore and say okay well what else is out here what else is selling does it remind me of mm-hmm. um and meanwhile while i'm doing that i show it to my colleagues and there are eight other editors here and a whole host of other interested parties who are all really good readers um and Norton is a little bit different than other companies where we're independent and employee owned. So everybody has a say. Every week at our editorial meeting, we make decisions about what we're going to buy, what we're not going to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we decide to buy a book, then we make an offer on it. And if we succeed in buying the book, if the author agrees to come publish with us, um, then the process you're talking about starts. So okay. um, a contract will be written. Our contracts department will negotiate the contract with the author's agent. Um, the, the author eventually will sign the contract. Will uh, you know? They'll be paid a part of their advance. Um, then they'll start writing the book. And editors are involved with their writer's work to different degrees. I tend to be a hands-on writer. I like to see the first couple of chapters as they come in, um, just to see that the author's on the right track. Um, then I'll read, you know, a whole chunk of a manuscript uh, or, you know, read them chapter by chapter. Some authors some authors don't want my help until they finish the book. Um, other authors say they don't want my help until they finish the book, and then they'll show me, you know, every chapter as it's written. Um, some people will send me sections. I have one author where I do a section at a time. I have another author where I do a chapter at a time. I have a third author where we talk everything through and then then talk everything through again. Um, I have an, another author who doesn't send me anything until it's done, and then they say, here it is. What do you think? Um, you know, so every every writer has a different process, and I try to be there to help them, but also I try to be a little bit of a traffic cop just so I know that they're not wasting time doing stuff that's not useful to them. Right. Um, and at every stage, I edit their work. I read it, and I respond to it, and I say, that's good, that's bad, um, this is interesting, how do you know that, you know, this sentence doesn't make any sense, um, what, what, what are you getting at here? Um, and uh, we, we work it out. And once the manuscript is done, oftentimes round after round of editing, other times, you know, I read it once and it's great, we go. Um, and uh, once that happens, I give the manuscript to our, our managing editorial department. And they they find a copy editor. The copy editor copy, copy edits the book. Um, meanwhile, our sales team um, starts to sell the book. No, not meanwhile. Before that, we start thinking about a cover for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, we start thinking about our marketing plans and the ways that we're going to talk about the book. Mm-hmm. We have to distill an entire book's worth of information down to, you know, catalog page length um, because the salespeople are only going to have, you know, 20 seconds to describe each book. So we have to distill it down to its main kernel of what it is and why it's different, mm-hmm. um, which is some of the most challenging things to do. It's like trying to get trying to get, you know, a whole idea of a book down to just one sentence. It's very difficult. Right. Um, the, the, the best editors know how to do it um, really well. And uh, then once we have a cover and description and we print a catalog, then and we schedule a, a month that it's going to be published in. So we'll say this is going to be published in April of 2013. Mm-hmm. Then our sales people go out to independent bookstores and they go out to Barnes & Noble and they go out to Amazon and they go out to every retailer and try to sell them advanced copies mm-hmm. um, and get orders in so that when the book is out, 
when the book comes in, we can send them ahead of time. So they'll be in stores when the media hits. Uh, and, you know, during all of this, I work with a publicist, uh, and the author works with the publicist to try to get attention for the book. So using the author's own connections, and then we'll approach news media organizations and think about ways to get attention for the book and talk to bloggers and, you know, book reviewers and sort of anything we can imagine to try to get attention for it. And that's, that's some of the hardest work uh, is, is that sort of marketing effort. Um, uh, and it requires the most creativity and enthusiasm because you get said no to a lot. Um, you know, but, but, you know, sometimes people say yes and then they write a great review of a book. Like I just had a book, I have this 94-year-old author named Diana Athill who's a wonderful memoirist. She's like the most, she's, she's one of the best writers I've ever had the pleasure to publish. And um, she was recently put on a Mother's Day gift guide at the Daily Beast Newsweek, uh, right next to Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, the softcore books. Um, and I was like, all right, it's not every day that, you know, your 94-year-old author is put next to Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Um, so, you know, sometimes sometimes your efforts pay off and exciting things happen. Um, uh, and, then, and then the book comes out. Um, the, well, that's skipping the whole sort of managing editorial process. The manuscript gets copy edited. The author reviews it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we work up interior design, so the fonts we're going to use and what the running heads are going to look like and what the doodads in between the paragraphs are going to look like and all the rest, the drop caps, um, how the photos are going to get laid out. And uh, then we do proofs. We, we typeset the book, and we bind up typeset proofs as bound galleys and those get sent out to reviewers and the author reviews those and we have professional proofreaders and then we go through about two or three more passes they're called of the proofs so each one gets looked over closely um, things that were still wrong in the previous draft get fixed on the next one mm-hmm. um, and you get down finally you send it to the printer the printer shows you what are called blues which are which is a test proof just so you have one last chance to make sure nothing's gone horribly wrong <laughs> and then uh, then you say go and they print it and then it gets sent to the bindery and then the books show up in our warehouse um, and uh, then we have a book and then we ship them to the stores and then theoretically uh, people talk about it in the media and then you know if all all of that goes according to plan. Hopefully, some people buy them. <laughs> and then you've got a bestseller. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, rarely, rarely, <laughs> rarely do you have a bestseller. Uh, really, you know, all too rarely. But when you do, it's really, really exciting. I mean, yeah. you know, they say in baseball, if you three out of ten gets you into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Uh, I think in book publishing, if you have one out of ten, uh, that's really good. Or two out of ten, you know, you can have a career. And if you have one monster bestseller then you can become a legend. But that's, you know, those things are really rare. Right. Like the Harper Lees of the world. <laughs> the Harper Lees of the world, that's exactly right. The best metaphor that I, can, that I can think of for what a book editor does is that they're kind of like the producer of a movie. Um, they're not the director or the actor. You know, the director has a vision for the movie, and the writer of a movie puts the words on the paper, and the actor makes it, you know, 
come to life. But the producer is the person who commissions the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put up the money. They make sure that the movie gets made and that the permissions are taken care of for the, for the songs that are used and that it gets in front of the right person at the distributor uh, in order for them to buy the movie and show it on screens. Um, but they're also heavily involved in how the movie ultimately looks. You know, they'll say to the to the to, to the director, you know, we'd really like to see more of that Jane character. She's so much more interesting than everybody else. Can't you do something about that? And depending on who the director is, uh, more of the Jane character might appear in the movie. Um, so it's someone who's integrally involved in, in the creative process, but is not the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, and also somebody who's intimately involved in the business process. Uh, and that's that's really I um when my mother describes my job to somebody else she says it's it's 80% you know his 80% of his daytime hours are spent sort of doing product management you know I'm trying to sell books to the world I'm trying to get books into bookstores and have people purchase them um but then all of my evening hours are creative reading exploration you know thinking what might be interesting, what does the world want to read, what do I want to read, do I like this writer, what can this terrific writer write about that would play to their talents, Um, sort of just general creative thought, and a lot of that happens outside of the office. Okay. Um, Yeah, sounds like you have quite a big job there. (laughs) You're uh, hands on a lot of different things at the same time. So yeah, well, it's it's uh, I, I don't know. It's it's at the end of the day, it's just books. But then sometimes things happen where j- just a book turns. You know, when so- when somebody reads a book and they like it, and they say, you know, I I really like that book. That was a really good book. It opened my eyes to this whole new world. That's one of the most gratifying things that can ever happen to a writer or to a book editor or even to a bookseller, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the book that I put into your hands. You know, when you give a book to a friend, think about that. When you give a book to your, fr- to your friend and they say, this book was great, I loved it, you know, Isn't, doesn't that feel good? Yeah, you feel like that's you... You've... That's, that's what my job is. You know, it's nothing bigger than that. Recommending book, finding good books and recommending them to people. Um, you know, I'm, it's not like you're uh, saving the world or something. <laughs> I have a, I have, I have a good friend who's who's a, a, a an attorney and he's done all this refugee work and you know helped a kid get out of Iraq and then helped him get surgery that he needed and you know sort of has done has done all these really heroic things and he's helping people get off death row and uh, we went camping one time and I said you know. Dude, you're living this amazing life, and you're doing these incredible heroic things, you know. And all I do is sit around and edit books. And he said, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you're saving the world, and I'm just making books. And he said, eh, you know, what's the point of the saved world if you can't have a good book to read? <laughs> um, so I, I, I take great solace in that. Well, and you also, you know, he's saving the world, but then through you, you know, you're able to spread the story, you know, things like that, get to reach a wider audience so people can learn about what's what's going on in the world through books. Yes, yeah, yeah, sometimes I do. No, it's a cool job. I, I'm very passionate about it. So now how much, um, we talked before and you said um, you, you get roughly 15 to 20 submissions per week. Um, can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how that gets kind of whittled down to what actually becomes a published book and also how much um, editing and changing uh, is done to a manuscript once it gets to you? Yeah, sure, sure. That's a really good question. Um, When it gets to me, 
that phrase encompasses a whole world. Um, most of the things I see come from book agents, and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of book agents in the world. Um, some are much better than others. Uh, some are, you know, but all are passionate about books. You know, this the one thing that that is important to remember is that everybody is passionate about books. There are very few cynical people in this business, uh, which is hard to remember sometimes if you're a writer who's struggling and, and no one's gonna, no one's reading your stuff and nobody's turning your, man, you know, your manuscript hasn't become a New York Times bestseller yet and you're wondering why. You know, it's, it's easy to get angry with people. Um, but everybody's passionate about books and everybody's trying hard to find good books. Um, and so most of the things I see come from book agents. And that means that an author pitched an agent and the agent liked what the author pitched. And then they worked together on a book proposal for nonfiction books. If it were a novel, they'd write the whole thing. Um, and by the time that gets to me, a fair amount of work has been done. You know, they've distilled a nonfiction book idea down into a 50-page proposal, um, or they've gone through a draft or two of editing on a novel. And once it arrives to me, it's already sort of, it's already been through a selection process. It's not just, you know, everybody who wants to be a writer sending me things. It's a selected, th it's a selected, the 15 things I see a week are selected and chosen and specifically sent to me. Mm -hmm. Agents say, you know who'd really like this? Tom Mayer at Norton would like this because he's into whatever, you know, yeah. X, Y, and Z. You know, yeah. I know that he's interested in music, so I sent him this music book, you know, whatever it is. Um, in the same way that you'd recommend a book to your friend. You know, I know that my friend is really into basketball, so I'll send him this basketball book. Uh, yeah. um, but I'm not going to give him this, you know, literary memoir because I don't think he's interested in literary memoir. Um, and so once I get something, I, I read. Man, I read constantly. Uh, I read every night. I read on the weekends. Uh, I spent a full day, all day Saturday last weekend reading. I uh, read 10 proposals, and that happens every weekend in also editing. Um, and it's, it's, this weird, it's this weird situation where I read constantly, but whenever anybody asks me, have you read something? Have you read that new book? Have you read that, you know, this proposal I sent you? The answer is always no, because I'm always, I've been reading other things. Um, so, you know, I read constantly, and, when, and I read a lot of things that are, that are boring, um, or things that aren't right for me, or things that I can't publish, or things that aren't well written, or things that, you know, are fine, mm -hmm. you know, they're yeah. perfectly good, but when you can only do 10 books a year, mm -hmm. and of those 10 books a year, only three of them work. You've really got to love something. You know, if something's fine, that's not good enough. Something's got to be spectacular. And so when you read something that's spectacular, you go, all right, yeah, this is, it's, it's a really, you get a charge from it. You get excited. Um, and when I find something that's spectacular, I bring it to my colleagues. I, I ask my colleagues to read it. There are eight editors here, uh, and then there are various assistant editors who also bring projects up, and there are sales directors and subrights directors and people who, lots of people involved who are helping to sort of spread the message of the books that we publish, and they all get a say in, in whether or not we sign something up. And they're all passionate book people who have different tastes and opinions and experiences and things. Um, and we generally think that sort of the whole group is representative of a certain reading public. Um, and uh, and we, we can get in more into why Norton is unique compared to most publishers in a minute. But, uh, you know, when people read I, I get reads from my colleagues. They read something and they respond to me. And sometimes I'll get 
unanimous hatred. They'll say, this thing is terrible. What is wrong with you? You clearly were smoking something this weekend, so I don't know why you brought this to my attention and wasted my time with it. Um, other times, they'll say, yeah, you know, it's all right. And then silence. Dot, dot, dot. And that's, and that's, and that, and that's, that's actually the worst thing. We, we've actually realized that it's better when the room is divided than when the room is neutral. Oh. If, if, if a room full of people are neutral on a project, they're like, yeah, it's okay. We should, we should immediately reject it. Oh, okay. But if, people are, if, if half the room is like, this is amazing, and the other half is like, this is terrible, that means that it's, that it's provoked something, and that means that it's worth paying more attention to. Um, well, that's so, a, I was going to say, yeah, cause sometimes even something that's particularly bad. I, I was on a um, movie website one time, and it was the uh, – we're rating different movies, and the movie Showgirls, which I remember is just kind of universally panned, Lots of mm-hmm. people just gave it five stars. They're like, "This is so bad. It's fantastic." You know, it's just it evoked that sort have of you ever emotion. Seen, have, you, have you ever seen the room? Have no, you ever seen I that movie? No. Is that one of those? Two? Oh, you should you should check it out. It well, first, first, no. Well, I can't tell you which to read first. There's an essay by Tom Bissell, uh, the writer Tom Bissell, um, about this movie called The Room, and it is the best. Essay I've ever read about a terrible movie, oh, and it's yeah. a terrible. It's a movie that's so terrible that it's like it's become high camp, and people go to watch it at midnight screenings and things like that. Um, and it's it's a it's become like a crazy phenomenon. Um, and I, I can't decide even now which one is funnier: the the movie itself for being so bad, mm-hmm. and the the essay about it, which explains it in such depths of of absurdity that. Um, but yeah, but but that's but that's not, I mean I'm not I'm not trying to do things that are so bad that they become good right. you know I just mean like um, for example we published a book called The End of Faith by Sam Harris mm-hmm. that was a book where the room people almost resigned it was oh. people were like if we publish this book I quit oh, and wow. other people were like what are you talking about like this is such a great you know the the message of this book is so important blah 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 and uh, it and that book went on to become a major bestseller. Oh. A major bestseller. It was it was a book that sparked a huge controversy in the midst of the the sort of uh, uh, intelligent design, uh, new atheism movement, um, Dawkins and Pinker and those guys. And mm-hmm. um, Harris, you know, he was so provocative that the book really worked. And believe me, we've published hundreds and hundreds of books over the years that you've never heard of because we were neutral on them. So it's oh. it's. It's a really tricky thing figuring out what books are going to work. It's very subjective. Um, it's not rational. It's not fair. Um, and it has to do with some weird alchemy of what we think is going to work. Uh, we are totally gambling. Um, we don't have a system um, except for following our instincts and our enthusiasms and our passions. And, and, and that's as good as we can do. But we also do this constantly. We read constantly. We read the newspapers constantly. We read magazines constantly. We read books constantly. We look at sales figures. We figure out what's working. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do our best to keep up with our competition uh, and think hard about it and uh, try to improve our odds in various small ways. But nobody's, you know, Nobody's built a better mousetrap to figure out what the world wants. There's a, there's a famous study um, done, I think, in the 80s on network television. And it was about network television shows. And the title, it, it was trying to figure out why certain shows are popular. And they studied all of these different factors. You know, was there a famous actor involved? Was there, uh, the, by the producers of blank, you know, the new show that's about whatever, um, you know, uh, 
all of these, all of these things, you know, things that might predict the future. Does it have a famous actor? Is it by a famous director? Is it about an important subject? Is it salacious? Is it not salacious? Is it sexy? Is it not sexy? You know, all of these things. And they came to the conclusion, the title of the paper was, All Hits Are Flukes. <laughs> there was no rubric. There was no reason why to predict why something became a huge hit and something didn't. That's so interesting. Yeah, so you just have you have no idea. And I was going to ask you because um, before when you mentioned, you know, in your sort of research on, on what sort of um, uh, books to take on, you, you know, going to Barnes & Noble, going out there and seeing what what is out there, what sort of competition there is, what sort of books of that ilk have already been published. How do you sort of... Um, how do you reconcile something that's between saying, okay, this has already been done, and this is a hot property we need to jump on? Um, it's very challenging. <laughs> and I, I'm actually, it's something that keeps me up at night, you know, whether or not I'm making good decisions in that regard, because it's really, really hard to know. Um, a lot of it has to do, you have to sort of, Look, I've been doing it for eight years, and I still am not confident that I know my own instincts. Mm-hmm. And there are colleagues of mine who've worked, who've done it for thirty years, and they they can sort of they can feel their own vibrations, and they're like, "This doesn't smell right. I'm not going to do it." Mm-hmm. You know, and I say, "Oh, what are you talking about? Like, this smells perfectly fine." And I'll take it on. I'll take it on, and sure enough, it'll go wrong in just the way they thought it might. Oh, you know, wow. um, or it'll go right in just the way they thought it might. Um, you know, but it's. Uh, they were able to hear some weird note that was vibrating inside of them that said, this is not the right idea for these reasons. Um, this author isn't the right person to write about this topic, or this topic isn't going to play, or this isn't the book that readers who are interested in this topic want to read. They want to read a slightly different book. You know, mm-hmm. They don't want to read the story of this. They want to read how to do X. Uh, oh. it's, 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 it's all... It's, I have trouble articulating it, but it's very subtle distinctions that rely in large part on instinct. Um, I mean, there are some obvious ones. You know, if uh, a book, what's a, what's a recent example? Um, uh, there was recently a history of the ballet that was very well reviewed and became a New York Times top ten book of the year, mm-hmm. right? If somebody pitches me a history of the ballet, I don't probably want to publish it because there was just a history of the ballet published last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's a very so specific kind of subject. It's not like vampires or werewolves. It's very, you know, the history of the ballet is very um, specific. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's specific. It's specific. Um, and there are some things that are called evergreen topics, you know, mm-hmm. things that can be looked at every 10 years. Like I published this last fall, a biography of Caravaggio, uh, the painter, the great Italian painter who lived one of the most extraordinary lives. He was, you know, his whole family died when he was very young and he got in fights and was arrested and painted these brilliant masterpieces using, you know, prostitutes and slum lord, you know, people from the, from the slums as religious figures. And, uh, you know, he, oh my God, he stabbed a man in the groin and then escaped to the island of Malta and was put in prison you know, just a life that you couldn't even make up if you wanted to. Um, and 
believe me, this wasn't the only biography of Caravaggio out there, but it was so well told and so original, and the research was so good, and the writer had the right kind of platform. You know, he was a BBC presenter and had won prizes for his writing and all the rest, that it made sense. Mm-hmm. It was a topic that is of perennial interest, um, and the story was really well told and offered new insights and had done impeccable research. And indeed, the book got great reviews and ended up being a New York Times notable book. And we sold lots of copies of it. And it was a big, it was a big success. Um, but so, you know, there are rules and then there are rules that are made to be broken. Mm-hmm. And I guess, yeah, just um, the time and experience, I guess, just kind of hones that intuition on, on what you, you know kind yeah, of what's right it, and what's wrong. Yeah, but also a sense of what, how the other media work. You know, the if the New Yorker writes a big piece about, I don't know, some topic, um, they're not going to want to write another piece about that topic in a year. Like that piece is already the New Yorker will not do another piece about that particular topic. Um. So you won't get that piece of publicity. You know, 60 Minutes does a big expose on something. That's fine. That's great. People know about it. But it would be better to have the expose come out when your book is ready right. rather than two years before your book is ready. Uh-huh. Um, and so if 60 Minutes has already broken this story, then the book isn't going to be original. Uh-huh. You know, news, news organizations don't want to re-break news. They've already been beaten to the punch. They've already been scooped. So if you have something that breaks news, it better be the first thing that breaks news. Right. Gotcha. So now you mentioned that um, Norton is unique as far as a, a publishing house goes. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Um, Norton is uh, one of the largest independent publishing companies in America. It's totally independent, has been since its founding in the 20s. Um, it is even more rare. It's it's employee-owned, so there's not one rich person who owns the company. Um, it's not publicly traded on the stock market. Um, it is a it is an employee-owned company. I own shares of stock in the company, and so does my colleague in the next office over, and the person who sits on the other side of her. So there's uh, everybody. You're not required to own stock, but everybody, lots of people do, and um, we all collectively own the company. It's great. Um, like I said uh, when we were talking earlier, it's if we decide to sign up a book, we take it very seriously. We take the editorial process very seriously, mm-hmm. um, the selection process, the acquisition process very seriously. Because if we offer a writer an advance, that means that we're offering the writer our money. Mm-hmm. We're using our money to commission a book. We're not using Rupert Murdoch's money. We're not using Viacom's money. We're not using Disney's money or, you know, whatever. We're not using a corporate slush fund it's uh it's it's my my money you know and my colleagues money and my you know the my boss's money and you know the the woman who works down the hall it's her money too so we were very very um careful about how we spend our money um and uh, and and also once we sign up a book we're we're incredibly devoted to it because it's our book Mm -hmm. you know it's something that we've there's very little movement we don't the, the editors who are here have all been here for a very long time with a couple of uh, recent additions who both intend to be here for a very long time. And, uh, you know, there's there's not much turnover. Uh, the cast of characters has remained the same. And we've published some great books. You know, I, 
in the last year, we've had number one bestsellers. We've had winners of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Uh, we've had, you know, New York Times notable books. We've had NPR Best of the Year. You know, we, we, we publish very, very good books, and we publish them well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a specific kind of dedication within the company that comes from the fact that we can do whatever we want um, whenever we want to do it. And so, you know, we're we're not... Uh, there are some things that we'll never do because we're not huge corporations, um, and we don't have you know we're never going to publish. We're never going to publish some things that are that are just not our style. You know, we don't have a children's book division, for example. We don't publish any children's books because we just don't have one. Um, but we're not going to publish you know uh, celebrity memoirs because we're not interested in doing that. Ah. Um, if you're at if you're at Harper Collins, a significant percentage of your business look two thirds of the top selling nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. If you look at book scan numbers, uh-huh. two thirds of the top 100 are celebrity driven memoirs. Ah. And we're talking everything from you know Jersey Shore to you know whatever. Uh, I can't. I can't even think of them. You know, but, but you can. You can imagine. You know, yeah. Yeah, or, or you know, uh, um, Christina Aguilera or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. totally fine. I'm interested in those people. You know, they're cool. Like I like pop music as much as everybody else, but we're not interested in publishing those kinds of books. So we just don't do them. We don't do vampire novels. We're not interested in publishing vampire novels. We don't do anything paranormal. We don't publish religious books because none of us are religious, or some of us are, but we're not really interested in publishing religious books. Um, it's not, you know, we don't have to because we're independent. Yeah, um, nice to have that, and, that freedom to just choose like what, what you do and don't, don't want to do. Yeah, we publish what we want. You know, I'm interested in that. Is there a book there? Yes? Okay, let's do it. That's so, That's... That's the extent of the process. So now when, you, when you're working on a manuscript with an author, um, is there ever a point where you know, the, the author has written it or is in the process of writing it for a nonfiction book and you're giving your input, um, is there ever a point where you sort of reach an impasse where you think something needs to be changed and they're very hard-headed about it, they, they don't want to change it? Do you ever get into situations like that? And if so, how do you get, get through it? It is ultimately the author's book, not mine. Um, if the author insists on doing something that I disagree with, then uh, the author is welcome to insist on it, um, and it will go in the book. Um, we there are certain things they can't do. Um, you know, if there's a potential that what they're writing might be libelous, we have our lawyer read it. Um, and if we ultimately think that it's you know going to cause a lawsuit. Uh, you know, and be dangerous. We might say, you know, you can publish this somewhere else if you, because but, but we don't want to take the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but that happens really, really rarely. I, I mean, and for the most part, it's it's just a dialogue. You know, I say, look, in my experience, writing it like this is not as good. It won't work as well. I don't, you know, as a reader, um, the, my main service to writers is acting as a proxy for the general readership. Mm-hmm. After I read a book and I put on my my bookseller's cap and I put on my my book buyer's cap and I put on my book gifter's cap. You know, would I give this book to my mom? Would I give it to my dad? Would I give it to my sister? Would I give it to my brother-in-law? Um, 
would I give it to my best friend? Would I give it to my girlfriend? You know, uh, would I give it to her mom? You know, like all of those things. Um, and, uh, then I put on my book reviewers hat, like, okay, well, how would I criticize this book? You know, what haven't they done? Um, what have they done? You know, is the writing good enough? Is it flabby? Is it, you know, clear? All of those things. And if using that sort of toolkit of perspectives, reveals that this section isn't good enough or not interesting enough or flat out wrong or if I disagree with it, I'll tell the author that. And they can really do with it what they will. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that the best writers, the, the best writers have reasons for what they're doing. Uh -huh. um, some of my favorite writers, you know, I, I, I published a, a novelist named Lydia Millet. Um, who was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and she has this fabulous book coming out this fall called Magnificence, which is about a woman who inherits a house full of taxidermy, and it's all about humans' relationships with animals, and it's it's wonderful. It's you know she's crashing around this big mansion in Pasadena with you know claws and beaks and fur and tails and stuff, um, and she's she's a marvelous writer, and she delivers these manuscripts to me that are perfect, and I can think of about ten things to say. Uh, you know, I rack my brains and I think of ten things to say, and she. She says, no, I won't, no, no, well, I'm not going to do that. But this is a good point. You make a good point here, I'll fix that, you know. Oh. Um, so I, I, I sort of poke and prod at a manuscript, and I try to point out errors in it, and I, and I generally ask provocative questions mm -hmm. that I hope will lead the author to reconsider what they've written um, and to make sure that they do better before, the, you know, do, I, I want it to be as good as it can be before the author moves on. Mm -hmm. So I poke at weak places and I point out errors and I ask questions when I'm unclear on something. Because oftentimes just me going, wait, why is the uncle here? They'll go, oh, well, the uncle's there because of blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, but you didn't say that. And they'll say, oh, I didn't say that. Okay, okay, I'll explain it. And then they write a paragraph that clears everything up. Ah, you know, because they just look at it again. Because they hadn't, they're so deep in their own manuscript that they haven't even had a chance to, so they that they're blind that. to the, they're blind to the error. You know? Right, right. Yeah, they need that, that fresh viewpoint to say, oh, wait, you, the, the whole time they're thinking, oh, of course the uncle's there. And they think, wait, oh, shoot, I never said that. So, exactly. Yeah. So now how does your job differ between, because you, you take on fiction and nonfiction, and, you know, fiction mm -hmm. um, is, it's the completed manuscript, whereas nonfiction is generally the, the proposal. Um, in what way does that make your job different, your, your process? I have a friend who's an editor at Knopf, and he told me that one of the smartest decisions he ever made in his career was not doing fiction. Oh. Um, and I asked him why, and he said, well, the submissions are shorter. Uh, <laughs> for, for nonfiction, you often commission the research. A writer writes a proposal of 50 pages, and they have to do a lot of work to develop those 50 pages. And it's not like they just sort of sit down at a computer and bang something out, and then you give them the money to go do their book. Mm -hmm. um, they have to do a lot of work, but when... But then, you know, after those 50 pages, I'll say, okay, go and do the research. You know, here's a little bit of money and uh, good luck, you know. Uh, call me in a year when you're done with your research or whatever it is. Um, and they can do that. But I was able to make a decision after reading 50 pages. <laughs> Novels cannot be properly assessed unless you read the entire thing. Yeah. Um, and if you are pitched 10 novels a week, 
you are expected to read 10 novels a week. Oh, 10 novels a week is a lot of pages. Lot An of average pages. novel is 60,000 words. You know, if you were pitched 10 a week, that is 600,000 words. Um, you know, the power broker is 200,000 words. Oh, uh, it is 1,000 pages long. You know, it is unreasonable to assume that an editor can read 10 novels in a week. Right. Uh, and so they don't. You know, you read 75 pages and you say, you know what, this isn't working for me. Not for me. Sorry, I'm going to turn it down. But if you like something, then you got to finish it. Because, you know, a book that tails off halfway through is a, is a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Both for you, for the reader, for everybody. So, you know, you got to you know you got to read all the way to the end and so i am um, i by doing both i tend to read a little bit more than colleagues or i tend to be a little bit slower than colleagues who only do nonfiction mm-hmm. uh, because i have to get through those novels um but it's all relative. I, I think of myself as a fairly slow reader. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people I know who can actually sit down and read 10 novels in a week, and those are people that I have endless admiration and respect for and not a small bit of envy. They've taken a speed reading course or something. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. I figure most people with just leisure reading to be, read a 300-page book in you know a week or something, <laughs> not, not even in a day. Um, I've been reading. I've been reading Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel ten pages a night before I go to bed. It's like it's like it's like it's like the like dessert before bedtime. It's like you know, it's one of my favorite parts of the day. But you know, at that rate, it's going to take me a year to read that book. Yeah. I used to do that, too. Like, I'd only read before bed, and I'd already be tired getting into bed. And, yeah, I'd get through five, six, seven pages, and then I'd nod off. And then, yeah, it would take a month to get through anything. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So now Well, you, you know. Oh, go ahead. No, no, your turn. <laughs> um, you publish books in many different categories. I mean, fiction, nonfiction, all different, um, you know, subcategories within those. What, what's your favorite genre? Um, I'm I'm not answering that question. I love everything. I'm I'm a I'm a I'm an unreconstructed generalist. I I have a very broad. I know a I know a little bit about a lot of things. I have a very shallow knowledge that goes very broadly. Um, I love reading everything, anything that's interesting. Um, I love reading about sports. I love reading about pop culture. I love reading biographies. I love reading good novels. I love reading thrillers. I love reading, you know, anything. I don't have a favorite genre. Um, there are times where what I really want is a, a terrific work of narrative nonfiction. There are other times what I want is a, you know, a heartfelt novel. There are other times what I want is a sappy love story. I, I really couldn't say some people are like you know what i like i like business books some people are like you know what i like i love sports biographies and that makes their life easier because they can just read all the sports biographies uh-huh. and they could just read all the submissions that are sports biographies but i'm not interested in that I, I sort of treat my job and my reading life as as that of a collector i collect interesting things um and there are certainly shelves of mine that are deeper than others i don't have you know, a whole lot of post-structuralist theory on my bookshelf, um, and I have a sort of surprising number of narrative nonfiction works. Um, but I, it's it's not uh, by design. I read what comes across my desk. I'm a total omnivore. Mm-hmm. Well, and that also, you know, I think that's it. it gives you a, a broader view of the world in general. And if so, you know something could be, I mean, I found in my own reading, some something is like 
briefly mentioned in, in one book, but then you think, oh, I wonder what's, what that's about. And then you come across something else that completely focuses on that. And you're already, you already have that association. And you're like, oh, let's delve into this and see what this is all about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When I had one of my favorite experiences with that was I read, um, I reread, actually, because I had read them years ago, but I read Up in the Old Hotel by Joseph Mitchell. Have you ever read that book? I have not, no. Oh, my God. Joseph Mitchell is one of my favorite writers of all time. He was a New Yorker writer um, in the middle 20th century, um, fairly early on, and he wrote about weird parts of New York. Um, His most famous essay is called Mohawks and High Steel, Uh and it's about Native American uh, steel riveters. Um, So these people who are building buildings, but they come from a particular tribe of Mohawk uh, Indians. And he's the master of... The, the sort of long-form essay. Uh, he wrote about oysters. He wrote about gypsies. Um, get up in the old hotel immediately. Um, he wrote about McSorley's Saloon. He, it's, it's just one of the best books, one of the best collections of essays that exists. And he has a couple of essays in there about gypsies, about the gypsies in New York City, about the gypsies traveling around the country. And I got interested in the gypsies because they, you know, the Roma traditions seemed interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And then Right after that, I read a book called Bury Me Standing, which was, my friend was like, oh, you're interested in gypsies, you should check this out, which is this incredible book about uh, about gypsy culture in Europe. And then after that, somebody was like, well, you should really read, you know, Colin McCann's book. And he had written a book about gypsies, and it was like oh, wow. one after the next, and I, I really went down the rabbit hole uh, just because it was free associative. And I still recommend sort of the stack of four books together to mm-hmm. people. I say, yeah, you, you first start here and then do that. And then do, you know, just like I've done here to you, it's, um, I really can't recommend those books enough. You start with Joseph Mitchell mm-hmm. and you read his books about his essays about gypsies. And then you read Bury Me Standing, uh, by Isabel Fonseca. And then after that, you read Zoli by Colin McCann. Okay. And then, then you send me an email and you tell me which one you like best, and then we have a conversation. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like, um, uh, it's like, remember when we talked like six months ago? And here's the, my gypsy, <laughs> my gypsy opinions. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd like to, I'd like to hear your opinions about Roma culture in Europe. Won't you please send them to me? <laughs> Roma culture in Europe. All right. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's really fantastic. And so many, um, it's just so many books that you might not know of, might not have heard of. And suddenly, you know, just by already having the, the, the interest there, it's like you're suddenly seeking out books that you would never, you know, maybe come across otherwise. Exactly. That's exactly it. I published a book about the art world once. That was one of, it was a big success. Um, and I knew nothing about contemporary art, um, much less classical art. But then after I had read the book, I suddenly knew a lot more and people knew that I had published that book. And so they started sending me books about art and I started reading more about art. Now I know stuff about art. Um, there's a, uh, one of the editors emeritus at Norton, this guy named Ed Barber, who's one of the sort of legends in book publishing. Um, a really fantastic guy. He said that he treated every book like a graduate school course. Oh. He would go in and he would read the book and use it as a way to really learn a subject. Mm-hmm. And that would be, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So we are almost out of time. Um, I wanted to, um, we do a little thing at the end of each interview called Rapid Fire, where I'll just um, present some questions that are either or. It'll be like, you know, I'll say black or white, and you just pick which one, and it just helps our, our listeners get to know you a little better. Fifty um, Shades of Grey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, books, hard copy or Kindle? 
hard copy. New York or San Francisco? Tough. I'm from Berkeley. Oh, oh, I don't have an answer for that. It depends. I live in New York, but my heart is in the Bay Area. Heart in San Francisco. <laughs> More or less. Say, say Kansas and leave it at that. More or less. No, no, not Kansas. One or the other. Those are the two. Yeah. Um, cello or bass? Cello. Taxi or subway? Subway. Bicycle. Bicycle? Oh, okay. Uh, Revolutionary War or Civil War? Civil War. <laughs> okay. Well, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. You gave, I think you gave us a lot of really great um, information, really good insight into the, the world of editing that I think um, you know some of our listeners aren't familiar with. My pleasure. It was, it was great to, to be here, and thank you so much for having me on. Great. So you can you can follow Tom on Twitter at um, twitter.com slash TomStoneMayor. And uh, if you have any questions on the craft or business of writing, send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. And there's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.